0: Bill W. speaking at the Oklahoma State Conference in Oklahoma City, May 1951. Incredible. Please listen up. How Bill says, the grace of God. Incredible movement. Uh, AA has been in inception for 15, 16 years. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray the uh, third step prayer, please. God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those that would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Here's Bill.
1: The last, the best of the last. We've been very fortunate on the program that has been presented to us throughout this meeting. We're indeed fortunate here in Oklahoma to have with us on this occasion one of the co founders
2: of the movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. He doesn't need much of an introduction to
1: anybody. I'm happy. At this time, to present the bill. religion, or, as you must know, AA is something like a farmer's three-legged milk stool, supported in one side by what we have learned from medicine, on another corner by what we have drawn from religion. and the other leg, of course, is our own experience. made all his point. so do all of our friends of medicine and religion were present. We gratefully acknowledge our debt. And for chance, there are some of the men and women of the press here who have been couriers over the past years of our message to all the world, and never a syllable of ridicule or criticism. Have these ever written of alcoholics anonymous? Their work has made possible the recovery of tens of thousands of afflicted ones. So to them our deep thanks. And we think of the host of other friends we have, the goodwill of the citizens of this town. In government, of those in many places whose goodwill means so much to us. What a fine expression that just was that four of the citizens should come in here to make us know that we are now respectable ones, to make us feel needed and wanted in this community. In fact, is it not a rather singular circumstance that a gentleman from the sheriff's office should be singing to a bunch of drunks? Did you ever thought of that? And <laughs> speaking of my own special reasons for gratitude. I find no words to describe my feelings about what has happened here as i bring you congratulations from aas all over the earth for today the sun never set upon the society of alcoholics and, and these send you their greetings and their brotherhood and their affection and i thank all who have made this Happy event. Huh? Those whose labors have been unseen, but which have flowered in this wonderful occasion. And the hospitality you have extended to me. Alcoholics Anonymous is now about sixteen years old. And yet we sense that we have passed through three periods. A period of infancy, a period of adolescence, and now we think we're upon the threshold of maturity and face our future. We are now taking destiny by the hand. So I think it would serve the purposes of this meeting if I led you through the years of infancy, during which time we developed the principles and applied the principles upon which individual recovery is found. Then I took you through that exciting period of adolescence, when we lived and worked together, during which time the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous was generated. That body of principles of group conduct, which we hope may contain us in unity for so long as God shall need us. And I would especially like, then, to emphasize the fact that without us Alcoholics Anonymous, faith is dead without work. In other words, this is a society of action. Action is the the magic word, so I would like to dwell a bit upon the whole idea of service as we now see it, as it applies to what I hope will be a great and happy future. For some 16 years now, you and I have been watching a great building under construction. To us of alcoholic phenomenon, this is something more than a building. This, to us, is a veritable cathedral of the spirit, into which 120,000 of us have now entered, and herein have found peace, and a brotherhood, and a freedom, of which we could never have dreamed, and yesteryear. So let me take you back now to the very beginning, leading you down through our infancy and adolescence to where we are now, marking as we go those important realizations and decisions which have so deeply affected our death. In a sense, AA has just been a succession of realizations and decisions taken by individuals and groups of individuals. Let us see what some of those were. In the summer of 1934, I lay in a hospital devoted to the care of alcoholics. It was the end of a long road. And for the first time, I understood the futility of my position. I knew that I was utterly hopeless. I knew that I had no power of my own to go on living. And that verdict had been (coughs) pronounced by science, which had said the alcoholic is one who has an obsession which condemns him to drink against his will. An increasing physical sensitivity that condemns him in time to go mad and die. And those terrible facts of my case had come home to me in flood time as I lay there on my bed. So, without realizing it, I was having a realization that is absolutely indispensable to each one of us before we may make any progress to recover, a realization which has been shared by every alcoholic in this room. I had hit button and knew it. I was not the only one who shared this realization. Downstairs in the hospital, a famous doctor was talking to Lois, my dear wife. And like many a woman before and since, she was asking these questions. She was saying, doctor, for a year." Bill had wanted to stop. He had desperately wanted to stop. He had been willing to do anything. Now, Dr. Bill was always a man of great willpower. In other matters, why doesn't his willpower work now? Why can't he stop, Doctor? And, Doctor, how serious is this business? And the good man was compelled to tell her that my habit of drinking had slowly turned into an obsession, a veritable insanity, which condemned me as much to drink as a kleptomaniac is condemned to steal. And that my physical condition had deteriorated, perhaps my brain already a little. And that that was the age-old dilemma of alcohol. Unlike many another woman, Lois said, "Well, what does that mean, then?" Gentleman that he was, he had to tell her it means, Mrs. Wilson, that you must soon put him away somewhere. Else he will go mad or die. So this realization of hopelessness, now so important to every one of our society and invited in our the very first step of the A program, came not only to me, but to one very near and dear. How well you women and the husbands of alcoholics know. Leaving the hospital. I was very badly frightened for a time very vigilance kept me so. but little by little, as I felt better, my fear wore away and in November of that year, the obsession had me, there I was alone drinking in my kitchen, Lois working in a department store to support me, I no longer dared go in the streets, lest I be taken up by the police. Drinking a fifth of gin to be high for a day, two to be tight, and three to be drunk. Drunk most of the time. Ten night Could not stop. Well, at that juncture, a friend I hadn't seen in many years, had a realization and he took it to station. He too had been visited by this dire malady. I had known him to be a hopeless one for a long time. Suddenly the telephone rang. Here he was on the other end of the wire. I knew at once he was sober. I'd never known him to be in New York City, though. So. And I said, come over, Abby. My friend, I'd love to see you. We'll drink together, and we'll talk about the good old days. Ah, what a significant remark. The good old days indeed. For you see, to me, the present was unbearable, and there was to be no future. Yes, we drink together, and talk about the good old days. I met him at the door. And by some psychic sense, I saw at once that he had something more than just a I couldn't make it out. He came in, sat at the kitchen table. I pushed over a full tumbler of gin. He said, no thanks. I said, Eddie, what's gotten to do? You want the water raggedy? Oh, no, no, I'm just not drinking. I was puzzled. I was disappointed, too. We visited a little bit. I was very curious. I said, calm, my friend. What's got in Simply and smilingly, he looked at me and said, I've got religion. I shuddered. I said, now, this poor boy has substituted alcohol, religious insanity for alcoholic insanity. Too bad. He may as well have hit me in the face with a wet mop. For well, I was one of those agnostics. I was one whose modern education had told him there is no God. Oh, the poor fellow. Well, one had to be polite. So I said, well, let me... Uh, What kind of religion have you got? Oh, he said, I wouldn't really call it religion. You might call it the religion of common sense. I just picked up some ideas from a group of people. One of them had to be a drunk like myself. And here they are. Very simple ideas. None of them new. He said under their advice, I got honest with myself, as I had never been before, about my personal defect. I quit the accursed business of living alone, and confessed my defects to another person in confidence. It gave me a lot of relief. Then I made a survey of my broken relationships, and of the damages my drinking had done. And I went to all those concerned to make amends to ask forgiveness, being careful not to confess their sins in the process. And then these friends had advised me that uh, I ought to learn of a new kind of gift, the kind of giving that demands no reward. And he said, Bill, here is the final point of my simple way of life. I discovered that I could not put these principles into daily operations and make them work on my drinking and on my problem of living unless I ask God for help. Now said he, I know that's an uh, You're an agnostic, majorian, but that's that. Well, as you see, my friend came with no new ideas at all. I'd certainly heard about honesty and I'd heard about confession and restitution. And the faith without works is dead. I'd even heard about people praying, didn't like the idea. Nothing new. Yet somehow, these simple principles presented by him struck me with tremendous force. Why? And now we uncover another fundamental of A. One alcoholic was talking to another. I knew that he had been a denizen of that strange world in which I was living. I knew that it was a hopeless world, and I believed it when he said that he had been released from his, obsess- uh, from his obsession, that so he was just no longer on the war wire. As he put it, it seems as though my obsession had been taken from me. And yet I was revolted at this idea of a God. Well, very wisely, he didn't try to evangelize me. He just said he thought he'd pay me a call, let me know what had happened to him, thereby exercising what our theological friends call the virtual proof, a lesson we've had to well learn in A.A. And presently he was gone. I continued to drink for the next week or two, but in no waking hour could I get the vision of my friend out of my mind as he sat across the table, setting out these simple principles to me. And at length I thought to myself, well, after all, who are beggars to be choosing? You, Bill Wilson, are just like a cancer victim. If you had cancer, you wouldn't expect to cure it yourself. You would depend upon any principle, any surgery, any physician that could check the growth of those terrible cells. And well, do you already know that your alcoholism a cancer of the emotions a cancer of the mind and if there be such a thing a cancer of the soul so who are you to say there is no God who are you to say how you will get well just like the cancer patient you had better be dependent on whatever position there is who can hustle I started for the hospital, I thought I'd have the doctors sober me up. I would have to look at this religious idea through completely sober off. I mustn't have any emotional conversion nonsense. I presented myself to 93 Central Park West, my old drying-out joint. On the way up there, I had got very tight indeed. The drunks here will tell you why. On our way to be cured, for the last time, we always get stiff. May never get another drink, you see. Through the fog, I could see the doctor. And I waved my bottle at him. And I says, Doctor, at last I've got something. And very sadly, the old man looked at me and said, My boy, I'm afraid you have got something you better go upstairs and go to bed. Well, I had come to the hospital early. The Larry and wouldn't have caught up with me for another month or two. So in three or four days' time, I'm free of liquor and any sedative given. But now I'm horribly depressed. I kept thinking about my friend, but again I rebelled about the great position. Suddenly there he stands in the door. Here it is early in the morning. My first thought was, just as thousands of A's have since thought, this man practices what he preaches. Then I became a little fearfully evangelized. But no, he's prudent. He said, Bill, I heard you were up here. I would come up and tell you work. And he made me ask him again. What were the terms of his deliverance? And quite simply, he stated, them, well, he said, Bill, I just got honest with myself. Talked it out with another person in confidence. Cleared away the debris of my past as well as I could. I'm trying to help other people without any demand for reward. That's why I'm up here. Helps me as much as I use. And he said, I pray that God is I on Yeah. length, the ecstasy subsided. Of course, I am still on the bed, but now I lie in a new world. I felt it once was unity. Doctor, have an examiner. He's a good alienist. So any he came. And at this moment the destiny of our society hung by a very slender thread in deep. I told him what had happened, in fact I could. Most doctors would have said, Oh well, Bill. <laughs> Just a little hallucinosis, soon pass off. But no, this skeptical man at science, being a great human being, listen sympathetically. Ask me a lot of questions. And finally he said, No, my boy. He said, You're not crazy. He said, There has been some great psychic upheaval in you. Somehow you are different. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe you had one of those conversion experiences that once in a blue moon sobers up alcohol. Well, I think you have something, my boy. And whatever it is, you'd best hang on to it. It's so much better than what had you only one hour ago. So I've been hanging on ever since. There's been no relapse since that day, and so have a lot of other people. Now, you friends who come in here may say, do all of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous have an experience like this? And my answer is yes, they do. They all have an experience that enables them to do that which they couldn't do before. In most cases, it comes on very, very slowly. What happened to me in six minutes happens to them in six weeks or six months, or even years. But eventually all of us become conscious of the presence of a greater power who can do for us what we cannot do alone. So that is a common central realization. Well such a realization, of course, called for decisions. And I made the same decision that thousands of AA% made. The decision was I wanted to help other alcoholics find this release. This release which had come on these very simple terms, yet with such mysterious power. So I began working with alcohol, frantically. In the mission, this doctor had ripped to his reputation. Let me come back and work in his process. There wasn't any result the six months. When I told of my sudden experience, the alcoholics would just tap their heads and walk off. Couldn't blame them because... In fact, the cynical still reported that experience as Bill Wilson's hot flag. Well, I feared that I had a little sense of divine appointment. I was trying to preach. And we yet lacked another element. So after a season of failure, my doctor, good old Dr. Silkworth, who passed away recently, said, Bill, shouldn't you emphasize the idea much more in this work that alcoholism is an illness? A fatal progressive illness. And then it began to dawn upon me that that might open up the drunk. To such an experience as I had had, or to some enabling thing that would re- remove their obsession. In other words, if one drunk projected it upon another, then not only here it's a release from alcoholism, but also that it is a fatal progressive disease, an obsession of the mind coupled to an allergy of the body. That message coming from one alcoholic to another might strike him deep and humble enough so that the grace of God might expel his obsession. So I began to emphasize this idea of illness very much. At that juncture, my wife's relatives begun, had begun to say, well, when is this guy going to go to work? When is he going to put being a missionary? When is he going to get a lawyer out of that damn department? Well, under such doting, I began to go over to Wall Street and sit around in brokerage houses, which made it look like I was involved. Sitting there one day, I fell into conversation with a stranger. Curiously enough, that led to a business deal. You see, my old business friends would have none them. This business deal took me to Akron, Ohio. I had insinuated myself by accident into the middle of a big proxy fight. Suddenly it looked as though I had a controlling interest in a situation which might have made me president of a little company out there. All elated now, I go out to Akron.
0: I think, well, God is rewarding me for all this good work I've done, although not think one single
1: drunk was sober yet. Arrived in Akron, the business deal fell through. The other side put more pockets on the table. My new found friends disappeared in the direction of New York, left me in the Mayflower ho- Hotel with a $10 bill in my pocket. And great waves, I felt pity and anger swept over. Suddenly I realized that I was in danger of getting caught. I began to panic. I began to walk up and down that lobby, looking in the bar room at one end, and at the other end, asking at the church directory. Well, as I remarked earlier, I don't know what this AA would have done without friends. So I called the clergyman. I told him of my need to find another alcoholic to work with. I told him that I needed another alcoholic as much as that alcoholic could need me. Well, the clergyman was a little nonplussed. His experience had been that one alcoholic at a time was enough. Why bring two of them together? Anyhow, he gave me a list of people I might inquire among in my search for an alcoholic. I began to call them on the telephone. They'd all see me in church Sunday, or they were going away for the week. But my need was urgent. But none were prepared to fill it, excepting the very last one on the list a non-alcoholic I called her it was a famous name in accent I was very reluctant I explained my need, and she said yes I know what you were talking about I am not an alcoholic but my life got in an awful jam. one well, I couldn't get out of it I understand what you mean by spiritual awakening and spirit you come straight out here So here came a non-alcoholic friend, one who cared enough. one who understood, one who would take time. And I told her my story. Straightway she said, there is a doctor here in this town, used to be on the staff at the city hospital. Wonderful chap, everything is falling apart, he's lost his post, the bank is about to foreclose his house, his wife is half an invalid from these years of drinking. Dr. Bob asks, should I call them up? I think I will. So my new friend Henrietta goes to the phone, gets hold of dear Ann, Dr. Bob's wife, says that a stranger from New York who thinks she has a cure for alcoholism. Well, Ann said this is very interesting, Henrietta, but Dr. Bob is just from home. It's Mother's Day, he has brought in a potted plant, out of deference to me. The potted plant is on the table. But alas, Henrietta, he is so potted that he is on the floor. We can't get here today. Well, not a whit discouraged, my friend Henrietta could have tomorrow. Let's all have supper here. So at five o'clock the next day, Dr. Bob and Ann entered that house. And we had to put it off in the library. Dr. Bob said he could stay only five minutes. He was very shaky, you see. He needed a drink. We talked for five hours. And this time it was on a different stage. Because now I realized that I needed that man as much as he could possibly need me. And right then and there, we of AA think, the spark that was to become Alcoholics Anonymous was struck. Or you see my first friend, the later fell by the wayside. And has not been picked up yet. Ann Smith then said to me, Bill, uh, would you like to come and live with us for a few weeks? You could keep an eye on Dr. Bob. He could keep an eye on you. Maybe you could revive your business deal. So I went to live with Dr. Bob and Ann in what too many of us is a really high home. Presently, Dr. Bob said, Well, Bill, if only in self-protection, don't you think we'd better be doing some work with some drunks? I said, Yes. So he called the city hospital, got the receiving ward, spoke with a nurse there, he knew. Said that a friend was in from New York. Thought he had a cure for alcoholism. At this juncture, the good doctor flushed, deep red, for the nurse had said to him, well, doctor, why don't you try that on yourself? Well, doctor said, uh, yes, but if you got a prospect down there, that's the part of the process. We want to work on another alcoholic. Said the nurse, we have got a dance. He just came in here, used to be on the city council, well-known lawyer around Akron, he's gone all the pieces he's been in the city high for six times the last four months he can't even get out of here and home without getting tight. i'm pretty sure he wants to stop he's got the dts right now he's black one of the nurses eyes we got him loaded with brow to hide and strapped down how would that one do you, doctor So I said, Dr. Bob, well, I'll put him in a private room. We'll be down as soon as he clears up. This is the medication you should give him. A little later, Dr. Bob and I saw a sight which tens of thousands of us have since seen, and God willing, hundreds of thousands of us shall still see. It was the sight of the man on the bed. of the man on the bed who does not yet know that he can get well. The man on the bed in this case was no optimist. He listened as we told our stories of drinking, of the simple precepts of our recovery, of our relief, and of course we bore in in on him hard about alcoholism the fatal illness. At length, the man on the bed shook his head, and he said, no, it's too late for me. I don't even dare go out of here. Oh, yes, you fellas have been through the mill all right, but I guess you're only in the ringer up your knees. With me, it's up to my neck. It's too late. Don't talk to me about religion, either. I used to be a deacon in the church. Funny thing, you know, he i still got a kind of God hasn't got any faith in me. I don't know what the matter is. I can't stop. Well, we said, may we come back tomorrow? Oh gosh, he said, this is a long business. He said, I'd love to have you come back tomorrow. So on the morrow we came. And the man's wife sat at the foot of his bed. We heard her saying as we entered the room, husband what is that? it? what makes you so different and seeing us in the door he pointed and said yes they are the ones they are the ones on the stand. and then in happy excitement he told about the long hours of the night before and finally the thought had come well maybe if they have been granted release from this thing Maybe I can have that gift, too. And he began to have hope. And then, as he became entirely willing to follow our simple precepts, he felt a singular sense of relief and freedom and confidence which now had swelled into such a great pride And he said to his wife, "My dear, fetch me my clothes. We're going to get up and get out." So AA number three rose from his bed, walked out of that place, never to drink again. And that was in June, nineteen hundred thirty-five. Although we realize it's not first day, a group had begun. I stayed on for a few weeks more, The three of us worked with other alcoholics. Mostly pained, but one or two did turn their faces to the light. Returning to New York in the fall of that year, now a little more chastened, a little more experienced, a group took shape there. Then came the we knew to the million who knew not. How were we to do that? It had taken us nearly three years to produce these recoveries. How are we to transmit this message? Could it call it nail face? We realized that within gunshot of where we sat, people were dying like flies. People said there were a million alcoholics in America, and three or four million more in the making. How could we let them know? Well, naturally, we thought in terms of hospitals. Hospitals didn't want drugs. They never paid their bills. They never got well. You couldn't blame the hospitals. So we thought, well, our society will have to have a trail of hospitals. And then we thought, well, our older members will have to go to other localities to start groups. And surely, we should have some kind of a book, so that our strength can be put on tape, so that it won't get dark, so that those millions who don't know can at least read about what happened to us. So, that very evening, the Akron Group met with Dr. Bob and me, and we took a decision over the objection back to New York and raise money so that we might have a chain of hospitals, we might uh, have members, older experienced ones, to go to other cities, and so that we might have a book. One day I go to my brother-in-law with an imaginary ulcer attack. I'm grasping how stingy the very rich were when it came to drugs. He said, why don't you talk to Shirley Wynn here in my office, former health commissioner. Shirley gave me a fine reception. He said, yes. He said, this will need a great deal of money. I can see that. Next thing you know, uh," he says, why not the Rockefeller Foundation? I shook my head. He said, oh, no. He said, the fellow for you to see is John D. Rockefeller person. Well, I said, Dr. Wynn, I don't. I wish to be facetious, but could you not also give me an introduction to the Prince of Wales, he might be interested too. No, he said you should see John D. Rockefeller first. Then here were, here was this friend of destiny. So thin, so tangled. My brother-in-law stands there scratching his head and he says, When I was in high school, I knew a girl, and she had an uncle, probably an old man now, I think he's a friend of the Rockefeller
0: family. I don't know that he'll remember me. Shall I call him up? And that was the uh, end of the the teaching. I have listened to it about two and a half times. The strangest thing about this teaching is uh, I got up around three in the morning and then I said, Lord, why do I can't seem to sleep? And uh, sure enough, I was... uh, 4.30, I was trying to read and pray. And and at 4.30, I just turned the lights off. And this phone went off with this recording by itself, folks, at 4.30. I believe there's angels all around us. Yes, this recording, this phone that has the recording on it, uh, went off by itself. It just, like, wanted to go on. And then I'm telling you, I always hear noises and stuff to be up and ready at 5 a.m. and get going. So I got up, clapped my hands, showered up, and got ready for the day and did these some recordings. So I thank God for uh, his leading. He does send his angels to talk to us. Be aware, the Bible says, angels are real. Heaven is real. We're in the right place, headed in the right direction with the right program. Influencing the right kind of people enjoying ourselves, making sure we're having fun, and we're always cheerful. We'll always have an abundance. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And i got to take coffee and take to a meeting that I'm not supposed to take coffee, but I know they don't have coffee and it's cold out there in the park, so I'm just going to head over there. Why not? See ya. Bill C. from Los Angeles. Speaking at the Sinus Groupens Christmas Convention in Stockholm, Sweden, December 12, 2009. Bill C., enjoy. Is that pretty? Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference.
2: Amen. Bill, alcoholist. <laughs> Is that pretty close? big like swede i saved my wife from aimlessly wandering from man to man it was kind of a form of service you know you'd have helped her too she was um we've had a wonderful time i got sick i'm sorry that i wasn't here last night it's the first time something like that's ever happened to me um usually any chance to shoot off my mouth I'm right there you know and uh and uh but I feel better today and um uh, it's just really a pleasure to be here we've had some good tour guides we had uh Ava Lota she is a walking GPS that woman she has more information than you could possibly ever need and uh you know, she could be just lying and we'd have no idea either, you know, 1621, 1432, you know, could be anything. What a fun girl. Um, um, we had Friedrich, not as good as Eva Lota, you know, but friendly, very friendly. And we knew we were in trouble when he had to ask a stranger for directions. <laughs> I looked at Karen. and I go, I think we're on our own here, babe. You know, do you have Ava's phone number? You know. We had a good time. We saw the Vasa. You know, the Swedes are willing to go to any length to recycle. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's a remarkable achievement. Talk about green. That is some green stuff, you know, and... Uh, Have you noticed it's snowing out? You should move. (laughs) You know, snow's not good. Cold snow. We're from Southern California. We don't have weather. Uh, We voted it out some years ago. You know, we like a constant 70 degrees. You know, you can't, I, I have the wonderful opportunity. Karen and I both do to travel quite a bit in AA. Um, we we go everywhere. I you know, I'm I'm a zealot. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I I think it's fun. People talk about doing service. It's just a hoot. I mean, I mean we wouldn't do it if we weren't having a good time, you know. Willpower and ego will only take you so far. I mean, at the core of it, you really have to enjoy it. You have to really really get something out of it that other people don't and and I just it's the most exciting and interesting and fascinating thing that's ever happened in my life and I I pursue it with a lot of energy I really I, I like doing it and I love meeting the people and uh so you can't help but think about look at this structure that you and I have built this alcoholics anonymous look at what we've built Isn't it remarkable? What a remarkable thing. Uh, David Hawkins, in his book, Power Versus Force, makes a pretty powerful statement. He says that Alcoholics Anonymous is the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. I think he's probably right. He estimates that 50% of the population of North America alone, United States, Canada, Mexico, Fifty percent of the population has been touched by Alcoholics Anonymous. That's 300 million people just there. That's the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. There's over 300 12-step programs that have spun off from Alcoholics Anonymous. 300. When they came up with Codependence Anonymous, they came up with an organization that absolutely every human being qualifies for. I mean, everybody can work the steps now. Everybody, whether they need it or not, you know. In Iran is a Muslim country, which I think everybody knows now. Certainly we do. And uh, so there's no alcohol in Iran, right? Therefore, there's no alcoholism in Iran, Well, there's alcoholics there, and they figured out how to get some booze, like we do. Very ingenious people. And uh, if there's no alcoholism in Iran, the government, therefore, does not allow Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not allowed in Iran because there's no alcoholism because there's no alcohol. Logic, you know. A few years ago, Narcotics Anonymous, which is allowed... Because narcotics is just illegal. It's not immoral. (laughs) There's some logic in that, I guess. So you can have Narcotics Anonymous because there is narcotics addiction because there is narcotics. Narcotics Anonymous had a convention in Tehran, 12,000 people showed up. 12,000 people. Do you suppose there's some alcoholics hiding out in the Narcotics Anonymous meeting? (laughs) Planning the takeover? You know? I just think that's a great story. Um, Now this organization that you and I have built, because without us it's nothing. It doesn't exist without us. It's a Bottom-up structure. We run the thing. And we run it incredibly poorly. I mean, stop and think about it. The first rule in AA is everybody gets to come. Well, that's bullshit. You know, I mean, you can't just have anybody come here. You know, if it was left up to me, I'd weed a few of you out. You know, so everybody gets to come. Everybody gets to come. Each meeting can be completely different from another meeting. There is no prescribed format for any meetings. You can pretty much do whatever you want. And yet it it runs. It runs. There's people around, there's speakers that go around that talk about how Alcoholics Anonymous has lost its edge, that we used to have a 75% success rate, and now it's less than 5%. My sponsor and I do a little workshop on this. We do the statistics and everything, which I promise I will not bore you with. But I'm here to report to you that that is not true, that Alcoholics Anonymous is as alive and vibrant and effective as it has ever been, ever. It's better than it's ever been, better than it's ever been. In Los Angeles, the children are coming, Children. Do you get that here? Do you get 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 14-year-old kids coming to the meetings at all? We do. In droves. They come. In droves. And they refuse to leave. (laughs) And we make it hard on them. You know? I mean, a lot of the old guys in the meetings leave. They say, well, we're not a daycare center. There's like some theory that the reason the kids are coming to AA is because it's so hip. My friend Scott Redmond says, Alcoholics Anonymous offered me a level of lameness that I did not know was available. (laughs) You know, AA is not hip. I think the kids are coming here because they need help. My men's stag, my home group is a men's stag, men only. Monday nights in Hermosa Beach. It's the Hermosa Beach Men's Tag. <clears throat> Every Monday night, there's between 100 and 110 guys in this room. And about six or seven years ago, the kids start showing up. There's always a few, maybe 18, 19, 20 years old. Now that they're really starting to show up, there's these long term recovery places in Los Angeles. It's a great place. Parents see their kids are having trouble, they ship them off to us, and they end up in our meetings. And uh, there is this kid there, he's 15 years old, and he's taking a birthday cake for one year. And he's standing up at the head of the room, he's short, he's just a child, he's not even done growing yet, you know. And he's in front of all these old guys, like me, and it can be very intimidating, it's known as kind of an intimidating meeting. Until you get to know the meeting, then you realize that it's, it's just all poof and buff, and, you know, we're just weird. And uh, so the kid gets up there, and he's giving his talk, his birthday pitch. And at the end, he stands back, and he points his finger out, and he yells out at everybody. He says, and if you're sitting out there tonight, and you don't have a sponsor, and you're not working the steps, may God have mercy on your soul. I went right up to him and asked him to be my sponsor. (laughs) He's still around. He refuses to leave. He's sponsoring guys now. I had this other guy walk up to me, and he's one of the kids that I well, they're not kids anymore. They stay sober. They grow up. This kid is now 24, 25 years old. He's like eight years sober. And he's sponsoring this guy that I know that's in his 40s, and the guy comes up to me and he goes, "Don't you think I should have a sponsor that's kind of my own age?" And I looked at him and I go, "Seems to be working. I wouldn't rock the boat, dude." You know yeah. Yeah. I don't think we've lost our edge. This is exactly what Bill Wilson wanted remember he wanted to build hospitals across the country he went to Rockefeller and he said give me a bunch of money I've got the solution to alcoholism and I'll build hospitals across the country and we'll put people in it and they'll stop putting them in prison and we'll put them in recovery and we'll sober them all up it'll be wonderful and I'll be the boss (laughs) I think Rockefeller knew that look that was in Bill's eye you know whoa And, uh, fortunately for us, he said, no, but he never stopped supporting him ever. He never stopped supporting him. Um, my father, when he died in 1999 was 45 years sober. And, uh, I grew up around, I was six years old when he got sober in 1954. And I grew up literally in AA and, uh, hanging out in the kitchens and bringing out the coffee and the donuts. And, and we were hanging out with Chuck Chamberlain and Clancy was the newcomer and they all said he'd never make it. <laughs> you know, I've cleared that with him, it's true. The guys that are still alive still say he'll never make it, you know. <laughs> but he seems to be outliving them all now. You know, it's like, it's amazing. And uh, my father was involved in something that Wilson called the Big 12 Step. And what he was trying to do, and he was, he was successful at it, is he went back to Washington, D.C., and uh, they lobbied Congress to support, to, to acknowledge alcoholism as a disease. The American Medical Association in the 50s called it an illness. Marty Mann and some other people really pressured them to call it a disease, which technically it's really not, but that's another story. But they, they got it. The American Medical Association to call it a disease, so they could take that back to Washington D.C. and get the Congress to acknowledge that, and start putting people in recovery programs. Get the insurance industry to support it, and start supporting recovery programs. And it worked. It happened. It happened. Now it's changed a lot over the years. There used to be nothing but medical model where you'd go in there for 30 days and pay thirty-five or forty thousand dollars, and. That wasn't working. The insurance industry wouldn't pay for it anymore. So most of them are social model kind of stuff now. But it's still happening. And when these parents see their children struggling and suffering from alcoholism and meth addiction and whatnot, they've got a place they can send them to. There's a recourse now. And they're taking advantage of this. So are a lot of other people. And Alcoholics Anonymous is, in a lot of cases, very antagonistic towards this. They're very antagonistic towards the recovery industry, which is just strange to me. They're our friends. They're not, they may be stupid, but they're our friends. I mean, they may not know what we're about. It's up to us to tell them. And these children are coming now. And I'll tell you something. When you have the experience of sitting across the kitchen table with a kid that's 15 or 16 years old, the age difference goes away. And I'll tell you something. It's like looking myself in the eyes. It's redemption. It's redemption. This is the healing that happens here. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I regret the past. I regret some things about the past. And a lot of those things that I regret are touched by these kids that come over to my house. Karen feeds them, you know. She has a lot of girls. I have a lot of guys. We try to keep them separated, you know. It's she tries to pair them up sometimes, which is, given the gene pool, is not a good idea, you know? But it's redemption when I was 17 I was a bad drunk in high school I'd already been to jail I had a gun on me some of the time I was angry I was full of rage I have no idea where it came from my parents didn't beat me they didn't molest me they were nice people my dad was sober you know he got sober he broke the chain in his family and it's a strong chain on my father's side of the family you can see you know some people well is it genetic or isn't in my family it's genetic you can see it like my sponsor says alcoholism doesn't run in my family it gallops (laughs) you know and uh, and I inherited this and uh, but at 17 having been raised in AA and all this stuff you'd think I'd know better but you know we all know if any of us have been around here at all the self knowledge as a tool to combat alcoholism is worthless sometimes it's a detriment you know but it doesn't matter if I've got it I got it and I set off the dragon and off it went and it ran hard and long for a long time 17 I was a bad drunk in high school at 22 I was in the Oregon State Mental Institution I needed a rest (laughs) you know my story because you know I should have done this last night. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I'd rather talk about AA. I'd rather talk about recovery. We all know the story. And my story is I was a surfer, and I was a biker, and I was a tough guy. And I never went to the beach. (laughs) My motorcycle rarely ran. And I was afraid to fight. But I looked really good. I had a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt and black Reese's Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I've got tattoos all over me. But I had a clip-on earring because I didn't want to hurt myself. You know? (laughs) Have you heard that before? So I see there's some other phonies in the room. Only in AA does that joke go over, you know. <laughs> it isn't a joke. <laughs> um, I got married at eighteen, nineteen. We had two kids right away. Went up to Oregon to grow our own, and uh, it was the '60s, you know. It was a it was a great time, actually. It was really a lot of fun back in the '60s. What I remember of it, and uh, and I, you know. So many of us, our stories are, I think the whole idea behind drinking, I believe what it was, was to have a couple of pops and get out of the house and go have an adventure, you know, meet her or him, get lucky and have some fun. Every one of us tells the story about how long before we drank, we didn't feel part of. We were separate from, we were isolated, we were aliens dropped off and we're waiting for the mothership to return, you know, it's like, we all have our own way of telling that story. And we talk about that like it's some kind of unique experience, like it's unique to alcoholics. I think every kid feels that way. Every kid feels disaffected, not in charge, not part of. We have the power. They're the kids, you know? And they all, and they start pushing that envelope and they all feel that way. The difference between us and them is we medicated that and we never grew out of it. You know? We even have a term that we use. We call it alcoholic thinking, as if there is such a thing. You know? Um, Silkworth. Heard us use that term in the early AA meetings. He got so freaked out, he ran home and wrote a paper about it. He goes, oh, God, they're making stuff up now. (laughs) You know, they've come up with their own diagnosis. And now they're starting to come up with their own terminology, you know, you know. So the rest of the world, the only place you ever hear that term alcoholic thinking is in Alcoholics Anonymous, You never hear that anywhere else. No one else ever uses that term. What they call it is that we are emotionally immature. And we hear that and we go, no. I have special thinking. I have alcoholic thinking and it's never going away and you need to consider that when you're dealing with me. I have special thinking. I think we're just emotionally immature. I think what happened to us is we started drinking and or using at 14, 15, 16 somewhere in there generally some earlier i have a guy that i sponsor says i started drinking when i was 12 but i did not drink like a normal 12 year old (laughs) somehow i understood him when he said that i i still think about that what why would i understand that Maybe it's because I have alcoholic thinking. You know? <laughs> we started drinking or using, and we missed all the lessons of life. We skipped the experiences. We either missed them completely, some of us missed them completely. You can see some people in AA have virtually no social graces whatsoever. You know I mean it's funny we'll start we'll start being critical of each other right every once in a while you got to stop and realize who you're sitting with here who are we we are the dregs of society you know we're the losers they make movies about us we're usually the characters that get killed you know You can always tell when there's an alcoholic involved in something in the news because it was an attempted robbery. You know? He just forgot to bring the car. It was an attempted rape, but the woman beat his ass up. You know? That's who we are. And we skipped all of that. And now that we're sober... We're going to grow up now. And the chances of us doing that and looking good are really slim. <laughs> you know, it's really going to be painful, you know, and, and here we are. So be patient with each other. Be patient with each other. Love each other. We got a ways to go doesn't happen overnight and we're the children of instant gratification we want it all right now and it just doesn't come that way we have to have the experiences that it takes for us to grow up and you cannot speed that process up but you can slow it down by picking and choosing what you will and won't do by taking control over your life with this finely tuned instrument that you've brought with you to the party, you know? know. What a wonderful tool, you know? Like, why would I ever consciously put myself in a position to be uncomfortable? I've spent my entire life ensuring that I'm never uncomfortable. I've, I've created a chemical environment around myself to be sure that I'm never unco- and now I'm sober and you expect me to choose things that are going to cause me to be uncomfortable so that I can learn from them and then grow up? No. I'm not doing that. No. You know, the most spiritual thing said in Alcoholics Anonymous, the most spiritual thing that you will ever hear in AA is get in the car. Well, where are we going? What do you care? Get in the car. Well, who else is going? I want to be sure the cool people are going. I wouldn't want to go with the uncool people. You know? I mean, we're going to make choices like that. We're not going to get in the car. If you leave it up to me, I won't get in the car. And don't tell me things like, there's a different program for everyone in Alcoholics Anonymous. Make one for yourself. Really? Really? You're going to allow me to make a special program for Billy. You know, it'll be interesting, you know. I think there's only one program, and we all know what it is. Matter of fact, I think what keeps us together in these rooms is that we have a way out upon which we all agree. What gets us here is the tragedy of our lives. What keeps us here is we all agree on the way out. We may not do it. But we all know what it is, we all know what it is, and it's the same for everyone. It's not different for somebody else, it's the same for everyone. The pace may be a little different, but it's the same. So at 19 I got married, at 22 I'm in a mental institution, I had two small children. I was sticking needles in my arm every day and I was drinking like a fish and I wasn't coming home to that family and they were on welfare and I was running with an outlaw motorcycle gang and I was in trouble at 22 working with these kids it caused me to remember what I was like when I was 17 and where did it progress from there at 22 there's no party there was no party At 22, the party had been long over at 22 years old. Nobody was knocking on my door asking, can Billy come out and play? You know, at 22, I needed you then. I don't remember anybody talking to me about recovery. It was tough. I mean, we joke about it. We laugh about it now because it's not like that anymore. But when it's like that, it's not funny, is it? I destroyed a family. I had no business being married, much less having children. But there you go. I came back down to Los Angeles and uh, my father gave me a job in his machine shop and he let me sleep in his garage. And I tried to get normal. And what normal is for an alcoholic of my variety is you got to quit shooting heroin because you can't get anybody to go along with the concept of social heroin use. You know, it's pretty much a lifestyle. Um, you gotta quit taking LSD because normal people have two way communication with each other. And LSD just isn't conducive to two way communication, it's a one sided kind of a thing. And uh, so you gotta quit the drugs, essentially. You gotta quit doing drugs because it's too weird. And uh, you drink on the weekends, you only drink on weekends because normal people have jobs. And they go to them days in a row. I've, I've watched him do it, man. I've, I've watched him. It. It's weird. And, uh, and when I drink, I don't show up no matter what. Everything stops. My life just stops when I drink. Everything stops. So what you do during the week is you smoke pot because it's green and it's from God and it's not really drugs, you know. It's biodegradable and, you know. It's just pot. It's what you do in between getting really high. And uh, so I tried the marijuana maintenance combined with a little drinking program for another 15 years. And the other thing you got to do if you're an alcoholic of my variety is you got to find a woman because you can never, ever be alone. It is a group effort getting me through life. (laughs) It takes a village, you know. And, uh... Um and you can find people out there that will take us on you know it'll take on our case and i met this woman and we set up housekeeping and and we went on a ride together and for 15 years i tried to keep it together i tried to keep it together and and it just it it just wouldn't stay together and uh pretty soon i'm drinking all the time and uh all the drugs were gone. There was, there was no more rock and roll. This wasn't a party. I mean, it was maintenance drinking. I was drunk from the neck down. There was no more mental and emotional relief. And, uh, and it was just miserable. And uh, at the end of that, I, I, we had gotten married, and I had two more children, and they were very young at the time. I was 37 years old. And like any good gangster, I called my mom. God bless the mothers (laughs) And this is a woman That had been in Al-Anon 30 years And uh, She came and got me quietly Before I changed my mind And she checked checked me into a recovery program In Costa Mesa, California A place called Starting Point I went to my first shrink When I was 13 years old Because I had rage My first psychiatrist I had rage And, uh, my mother said, boy, there's something wrong with the boy. It's just not that bad. So she sent me to a therapist and he helped me and he introduced me to my favorite subject. Me, you know, the lifelong pursuit of self, finding myself as if there's anything to look for. And, uh. I spent two tours of duty in the mental institution. This was a lockdown facility with barbed wire on the top. They were serious. And right across the street was the penitentiary, so you knew where you were coming from or going to, one or the other, you know? I spent two and a half years in group therapy at one time. I've been gestalted and rolfed and primal screamed. I know more about myself than is safe to know. But it is my favorite subject. So when it was time for me to seek help or whatever it was I was looking for that day, March the 27th, 1985, um, I could not imagine just coming to AA and not drinking. And I needed to be checked in somewhere. I I needed that. And my mother agreed, and she checked me in this place. Well, while I was in there, they made me wear a sign around my neck. I had to make the sign. We made it in crafts. It's a little rectangular piece of cardboard with a string that went through it. And it said, I am not a counselor. (laughs) Because evidently there was some confusion about that. (laughs) So after 35 days, they let me out. They just let us out, like, like we're okay now, you know. Go forth, multiply, you know. <laughs> and where do we end up? Here. This is the world's aftercare program. You know, there's no referrals from Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no place you walk into and you walk in there and you say, I'm from AA, they sent me here. That place doesn't exist. This is it. The inmates are running the asylum here. This wonderful, the most significant social movement of the 20th century. Run by a bunch of losers. You know? Remarkable. 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 Stop and think about this. I've been married three times. And people ask me for relationship advice. (laughs) I give it. I figure you can't hurt them. They're an AA, you know. I mean, you can just practice on them and see if it works. I mean, stop and think of the advice you give. People always have this misconception about sponsoring people, like we run people's lives. Yeah. As if they take any of the advice at all, you know. I mean, there's this illusion that we're demonic possessors or something you know and so some guy calls you up and he says you know i'm thinking about marrying the new dancer and you tell you tell him well probably doesn't sound like too good of an idea to me but if you do it i'll come to the wedding (laughs) i wouldn't want to miss this you know what the hell So now I'm an AA. I'm 37, going on 16. On a good day, I've got the emotional development of a 16-year-old, and this kid was not an honor student. He's the one with a bit of a problem with authority, you know, the loud, mouthy one, the big, looming, you know, frightened little boy frightened little boy always been a frightened little boy never knew i was i never i never felt that i could be a man i never felt that i could raise a family or take care of children never i can remember i remember clearly being a teenager thinking i'll never be able to do that you know scared to death of it scared to death of women and you can't say any of that out loud you can't say any of it you know karen expresses it beautifully you know her her knowing her role with men you know, not understanding women at all, and and every time I hear her share about that, I think I don't think I understood my role on either side of that fence. I mean, I was this badass biker guy because I had some twisted illusion that that's what a man is. So I I try I put on the uniform. I tried to be that. I wanted to be a gangster, an outlaw, a gunslinger. That's what I watched in the movies. I'm living a life of the movie i'm living gun smoke bonanza you know something like that you know i mean what 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 is that what was i doing what was i doing with those people you know i had no business being with those people at all that's not who i am not even close not even close so now i'm an alcoholics anonymous and i'm gonna grow up through this stuff and it's gonna be difficult and i have no clue i don't know what's going on Here's what I think I understand about it now. The first step says that I'm powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. Well, they told us that we're powerless over alcohol. They took it easy on us. They didn't want to tell us the whole truth for fear we would run screaming down the street. You know, who's going to walk into a program that says we are powerless over absolutely everything and our lives will never be able to be managed by us? We go... Oh, no, thanks! What else have you got <laughs> what 's behind door number two? <laughs> Another choice, please you know and that 's my after twenty four years of rather deep research i don 't believe I have any power over anything. certainly none of you. you just absolutely insist on living your own life, no matter how much positive input I give you. you know, and it seems to be that in nature. I am just utterly powerless. Nature does not need me to be part of the unfolding. It just kind of unfolds all by itself all the time with virtually no input from me whatsoever. At best, I'm an audience. I'm just watching the show. And if I don't have any power, how could I possibly manage anything? Managers have power. So I don't think my life needs to be managed by me at all. It just unfolds along with everything else. It's only taken me about 20 years to get that part, you know? And my sponsor, when he hears me do this thing, I go, that's pretty good, isn't it? He goes, I've been telling you that for, oh, shut up. <laughs> you know. I just wasn't ready to hear, you know? And I think that's true, isn't it? I mean, you hear all this wonderful stuff, you know, and finally it sinks in one day like it's brand new information. That's why we read chapter five at every meeting, you know, just in case somebody might be listening. You never know. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder where they got that from, you know? So if I can grasp the powerlessness thing, the, tw- the second step becomes operational. I need a manager. I'm not the manager. I need one. I need to be restored to sanity. Certainly enough sanity to not drink and use, but also enough sanity to really realize the depth of my powerlessness and unmanageability. To really get that. To really get it. If I can grasp that, then the third step is the next logical thought progression. I turn my life and will over to it. What life and will? The fourth step. The resentments, fears, and broken relationships. Everything that I'm bringing to the table, living a life with seeming power. Here it is. Here's my stuff. I'm pooped. You know, the fifth step is the ceremony that we go through to actually complete the third step. We tell ourselves, another human being, and this manager, here's my stuff. This is it. Because my suffering really comes from the fact that I believe I have power. Something will happen to me in my life. Somebody close to me gets ill. Maybe somebody close to me dies. And I'm, I'm hurt. I'm injured. I have grief. And then, on top of that, I lay a layer of suffering when I say that should not have happened. That was incorrect. There is no justice. The world is coming to an edge, an end. Screw it. I'm going to kill the whole neighborhood. You know, I mean, and it just goes like that. It escalates like that. Pretty soon I look at the world and it's all covered in darkness. This is the way it's always going to be. Life is a veil of tears. I've done all that. That comes from me. It doesn't come from the natural unfolding of things. Something just simply happened. It just happened. It's sad enough as it is. It doesn't need any help from me to be sadder than it already is. Therein lies my suffering. So the fifth step, I let go of these resentments, or I list them. I list them. I let go of them in the sense that here I'm going to expose them to the light of day. I have fear. Of course I have fear. Because I know this game plan that I've got is not working. So all the people that I resent, I fear them. All the people that have harmed me, supposedly. I fear them. So I hate you and I'm afraid of you. I had a guy on his fifth step one time. He said, I resent women because I can't have them. And I resent men because they all want my women. And I looked at him and I said, You know, dude, that's the entire human race. That's pretty good. It's going to take a long time to make those amends, though, man. The sixth and seventh step are about character defects. I can see what they are. They're in the fourth column of the inventory of the resentment list. My faults and mistakes. It doesn't say my part. It says my faults and mistakes. At the very least, if I'm in my 40s and I'm carrying around a resentment that happened to me when I was five years old, I'm unforgiving. At the very least, I'm unforgiving. If I'm still carrying it around. Because I'm the one that's feeling it, not the person that did it. I'm feeling it. So I can see what the character defects are. You know, I'm I'm arrogant, I'm pompous, I'm judgmental. I'm all whatever your cute little mix is. You can see what they are. The more that you do these inventories as the years go by, the more insightful that fourth column becomes. Because you know that's what we're looking for. We're not wasting a lot of time describing why that idiot did what he did, you know. It's more like how was I affected by it? And what were my faults and mistakes? How did I put myself in that position? Then the manager gives us our first job. He says, go out and make amends, make a list, put all the resentment people on there. I'm gonna help you rid yourself of these resentments. I'm gonna help you do that. This is the mechanism for ridding myself of resentments. People say that steps one through nine are about 15% of the program. It's Sober 101. It is the bare minimum. If you and I are going to have a message that has depth and weight that we're going to carry to someone else, we must do these things or we have no message. It's 15% of the program and we do workshops on it. We have manuals. We do weekly long, intensive, fifteen column expanded inventories. You know, I mean, we get so anal about it that if I do this other inventory one more time, it's another form of self-obsession. It's just an it's us thinking about ourselves again. You know? And if I've been relieved of the bondage of self, thank God it's over. I don't have to work on me any more it's over people say 10 11 and 12 are the maintenance steps maintain what what have i got now what have i got is this thing just about not drinking i don't think so that's already happened i'm already not drinking that's happened if i want to be comfortable in my life that's a whole nother game that's a whole nother game I don't think they were kidding when they said that self-obsession, selfishness and self-obsession was the root of our problems, that our very lives depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. I don't think they were joking. I think it's literally true. Whenever I'm alone in a room thinking about myself, I should get out of the room. (laughs) Nothing positive will ever be accomplished by me sitting around thinking about myself. And I just spent two days in a hotel room in Stockholm thinking about me. So, if I'm a little pissy, maybe you understand, you know, what's happened. I'm trying to work through it right now, you know. The 10th step is the continuing inventory process. It's leading an examined life. It's paying attention. I'm walking down the hall, I'm not bouncing off the walls. I'm walking down the hall, I'm watching myself move through life. There's a difference between self-awareness and self-obsession. If what happened to me in March of 85, as I was awakened, The rest of the journey is to take that awakening and turn it into some kind of an awareness where I'm actually aware that I'm awake. And maybe there's something I can actually do with this. Maybe this isn't an error. Maybe maybe there's something for me to do. The 11th step is about getting close to the manager. And you'll notice in the book that the body of the 10th step is really described in the 11th step. Bill had to break them up. He wanted there to be 12 But what a great spiritual exercise about reviewing your day and how to start a day. You know, if we could ever start the day thinking about the manager before we even start thinking, that would be an interesting day, you know. Now, in meditation, you can have the experience of watching your thoughts. That's a game changer. That changes the whole playing field. When I come to understand at depth, I am not my thinking mind. That is not who I am. Because if I can watch them, who's watching? (laughs) Interesting question, isn't it? Think about that. You know? What a remarkable thing. You know what that tells me? I don't have to change this thing. It's not my enemy. It's trying to help. It's just stupid, you know? I mean, it's not out to get me. We even talk about it in the third person. My head is out to get me. I think by mistake, we kind of got it right. It's just, we, we phrase it in a negative. It's not the enemy. It's just there doing what it does. And I can just ignore the thing. And it'll die from lack of use. You know, I'm, I'm serious. When it comes up with this stuff, when I'm sitting in the hotel room, you know, I can just close my eyes and watch the breath. When I'm watching my breath, I'm, I realize I am being breathed. I'm not breathing. I'm being breathed. That's a game changer. I'm very close to the power that drives the entire universe when I'm close to my breath. The 12th step is the manifestation of all of this. The 12th step is what they're preparing us for. The 12th step is where we are healed. Literally, we are healed in the 12th step. The 12th step generates the experiences necessary for me to grow up emotionally I cannot recover without you. You are an integral part of the process. And when I get on my knees and I ask for help, I shouldn't turn it away when it shows up. And it's going to look a lot like you. (laughs) You are the messenger. And for years, I thought I was saving you. I'm serious. I thought this is my job is to help these poor wretches. And then I come to realize you're the messenger. When you sit in a room and you give a guy a 20-minute lecture on how he should live his life, then he gets up and he leaves the room and you say to yourself, man, that's some good stuff. I should try some of that. (laughs) You run headlong into your own hypocrisy. Where else would that happen? If you weren't there, if I didn't have that experience, how would that happen? I used to stand up here and I'd say that if you were on medication, you weren't sober. Because I heard other people say that and it seemed like a really good badass opinion to have, you know? (laughs) And it's the old biker in me, you know? Let's piss some people off, see if we can clear out 20% of the room. Then we know we've really made a connection, you know? (laughs) Then this guy comes up and he asked me, he says, will you be my sponsor? I think I should tell you I'm bipolar and I'm on medication. And I went, oh, geez. (laughs) I promise you, if you open your heart to this work, if you have any prejudice at all, any prejudice at all, it will walk across the room and ask you for help you can count you can watch your watch and it'll show up uh, there hasn't been one that i have not addressed and if you want to maintain the prejudice keep it across the room don't engage it you'll find yourself so i had to work the steps with this guy I can't, you can't ever say no it's a rule and uh I worked the steps, and I had the experience of peeling him off the ceiling and lifting him off the floor. One time, he curled up in my lap, put his head in my neck, and cried like a baby. And I just sit there and rock him. A 40-year-old grown man. Karen walks through the living room. She goes, whoa. <laughs> now, that'll get your attention. Now, when I see that guy come, and I go, have you taken your medication? You know. So I had an opinion. Then I had an experience and it changed my opinion. I had a guy walk up to me and said, will you be my sponsor? I think I should tell you I'm gay. And I said, well, wouldn't you rather have a gay sponsor? And he said, no, he says, I don't have a problem being gay, but drinking is an issue. (laughs) Who knew? I guess I thought something else. The manager lives in the space between you and I. And the closer I am to you, the closer I am to him. People will tell you in Alcoholics Anonymous that you have to give it away to keep it. No. You have to give it away.